Greetings, everyone. It is a great blessing and an immense joy to be here with you. I can't tell you how much I love to be in this pulpit, to preach in this pulpit. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but when I used to teach the youth here for five years, I used to practice my youth sermons in this pulpit, even though I would usually teach them downstairs. And so I, I feel very comfortable here, but I also feel very comfortable knowing that we are loved here and that you have been praying for us. I want you to know the Lord is doing great things over at Gateway Church. We would love for you to come see that at some time. So I know that you may be doing a year-round Wednesday night. I don't know if that's ever going to happen. But what I also know is technically this is your last one on the calendar as it stands right now. But next Wednesday is our last Wednesday night worship for the summer. So if any of you would like to come and join us and see what the Lord is doing at Gateway Church all of you are welcome. I am sad to say, however, we don't have a meal at 6 o'clock like you do, but we do start at 7, and we do have the Word of God. And Matthew Shores, who you can also say is your very own Matthew Shores, is going to be preaching there for us. So I encourage you, if you're available, come and hear the Word of God. We are immensely blessed to be able to have Wednesday nights there as well, and it's such a joy, uh, and so we'd love to have you come and join us. Also, I just have to say how joyous it was to see all these kids going out. He said it was a parade. I think it's more like maybe the marching of the bulls. Um, it was beautiful. Loved it. And uh, I would just like to ask that at this time you join me as we open in prayer. Father God, I pray that tonight as we come to this prayer of Jesus, this occasion where Christ himself bowed before you and lifted his voice, Lord, I pray that we would be able to hear it and understand it and believe it and apply it. God, sanctify us in your truth. Your word is truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. I would ask that you please open your Bibles now to John chapter 17. Here we find what the theologians refer to as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And I would ask that you actually jump forward, keep your finger there in 17, but jump forward just for a moment, all the way to chapter 18, verse 1. And here we read these words, which says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, and there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. This is actually really helpful to us. I love that the gospel authors will often use geographical markers like this because we know exactly where Jesus was standing. You see, the Mount of Olives is still there, and what is directly across the Kidron Valley is still the same landmass that it was back then, but what was standing in that place at that time was the temple. This tells us that as Jesus made his way out of the city of Jerusalem, they made their way through the outer court of the temple and used that as a place to pause and to pray. Jesus, standing either right inside or right outside of the temple, stood there to pray for his disciples. And what a privilege we have of examining the second part of that prayer tonight. But I, would, I will say, before we get really deep into the text, I think it'd be really helpful to first understand two extremely important truths. First of all, you need to know that Scripture is not always written to you or about you, but all Scripture is written for you. Let me explain. Jeremiah 29, 11, it's a verse that many people love, many people know. It is written about the people of Judah who are coming out of exile, and they are to believe it, and therefore they are to trust in the plans God has for them in the future to leave exile. 
That is not to you. It is not about you, but it is for you because it teaches you about the faithfulness of God. Also, you have places in the New Testament, for example, the end of the book of Philippians, we find in chapter 4, Paul speaks to these ladies who are having a really difficult time getting along. He says, I entreat you, Yodia, and I treat you, Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. That is certainly not written to you, and it is not written about you, but it is written for you because you are to learn about unity from a text like that one. Most of the scripture, the overwhelming majority of the scripture was not written to you nor was it written about you. However, the second thing I want you to see in this text is this prayer. This is written to you, and this is written about you. Jesus is praying for you. Perhaps more than any other section of the Bible, these verses are specifically spoken over you. Look down to verse 20. Notice what it says. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who would believe in me through their word. Now, by saying these things, Jesus makes it clear that this entire prayer is more than just about the 11 disciples. He is praying for everyone who will believe through the testimony of the apostles. That means he is praying for you. That means he is praying for me. He is praying for every other Christian in the world. Several years ago, I was very discouraged. I was uh, pastoring over at Redeeming Grace Fellowship, and there was some things going on in life. And honestly, I think I just took my eyes off Christ a little bit, and I was just discouraged. And I was having a very difficult night sleeping one night. And I remember after this agonizing evening, I finally was about to fall asleep. It was probably 5.30 or 6 o'clock in the morning, and my phone buzzed right as I felt like I was going to doze off. And as that phone buzzed, I debated whether or not to even pick it up, but I did. And I looked at it, and it was a text message that said, from Niz. And uh, he was obviously waking up while I was going to sleep. And I, I opened it, and it just said three words. It said, praying for you. And I loved that. And it was very important for me to read those words in that moment. It was very important because I know that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And so when I read that, I was encouraged. Now, I was still dealing with a little discouragement over the course of time, but that was a reminder to me, there are people who love me who are praying for me, even though I feel discouraged right now. And that's a good thing to have Niz praying for you. But how much more glorious is it to know that the effectual fervent prayer of the righteous man availeth much? Jesus regularly prayed. And the Father always answered his prayers in the affirmative. God the Father never looked at Jesus and said to his prayer, no. To every prayer, the answer of the Father was a resounding and an exuberant yes. And last week, Mike Minot spoke to you about eavesdropping in on this conversation between God the Father and God the Son. And just imagine for a moment, if you've ever been eavesdropping, sometimes this happens by accident. You shouldn't eavesdrop. But if you were by accident walking by and you were eavesdropping, you were hearing a conversation and the person says your name, immediately you are going to pay closer attention because you know they are going to say something that is relevant for you. Today, everything in scripture is relevant. But notice, Jesus is praying these words for you. Let that catch your ear. Let that grab your attention. My goal for you tonight is that your perked up ears will hear exactly not that Jesus is praying for you, but what 
he is praying for you because the content of this prayer is so immense that it deals with every aspect of your salvation. So what was Jesus praying for you? Well, since we're diving into the middle, I'm just going to briefly recap what you learned last week, especially for those who were not here. Here's what Jesus prayed about last week. He prayed about the election of his people, verses 9 and 10. Jesus prays, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. He's speaking about a select group of people that have been elected from before the foundation of the world. He is praying for this elect group of people. He says, all mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now, in this way, Jesus presents us with a clear truth that God has set apart a specific people for himself. He has chosen those people out of the world, and now we are categorically different than those in the world. These are people that have been given to the Son by the Father. If you are a Christian, you are a gift from God the Father to the Son. Now, you may say, well, how do I know if I'm elect? This is a question that many people ask, and I just want to briefly answer by saying, in John 10, 27, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And alternatively, Jesus says in verse 26 to the Pharisees, but you do not believe me, believe in me, because you are not among my sheep. Those who belong to Jesus, those who have been set apart by God for salvation, will respond to his voice. They will hear him and they will follow. So you never have to say to yourself, oh no, what if I'm not elect? And worry about that. What you must do is you must hear his voice. You must repent of your sin. You must believe in Jesus Christ and respond to the gospel in obedience. The second thing that we saw last week in the text is that Jesus prays about his self-revelation to his people. Consider verse 6. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. God the Son has revealed God the Father to us. John 1.18 puts it this way. He says, no one has ever seen God the only God who is at the Father's right side, he has made him known. Jesus exegetes the Father to us. He is the Word made flesh. He reveals God. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him bodily. Jesus reveals to us the Father. Thirdly, we see that Jesus prayed for the regeneration of his people. Consider verse 2. It says, Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given to him. Now, the word regenerate simply means to bring to life. And here we see that Jesus is the giver of eternal life. Last week, I love what Mike said. He made a brilliant and accurate statement about eternal life, that it does not begin when you die. Rather, eternal life begins the moment that you believe in Christ, and he regenerates you and gives you salvation. Jesus prays to the Father about the very... uh, the very fact that the elect person is going to receive life, where? From the hand of Christ himself. And this is excellent news because he is the only person who could ever offer it to you. So last week we saw that Jesus prayed for the election of his saints. He prayed his self-revelation to his people and he prayed about the regeneration of his people. Now, congratulations. We've made it through the recap of last week and now we uh, have passed the introduction. We are at our text for this evening. Let's focus at our text at hand. And what we're going to do is consider eight more ways that Jesus prays for us in this chapter. First, Jesus prays for the enlightenment of his people. Look to verse 26. 
It says, I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Now, this is similar in some ways to what I mentioned earlier about God's self-revelation to us through Christ. But the distinction that I want you to see here is that this is making known, not merely a one-time act, but a continuation of this act. In an ongoing fashion, Jesus makes the Father known to us. Jesus promises in this prayer to continually and eternally be active in making the Father known to us. He does not stop at our salvation and say, hey, good luck, kid. There you go. I, uh, I made God known to you. I made the Father known to you. Now you can just kind of figure the rest out on your own. Let's see how you do. When you die, we'll kind of touch base and see where you made it. No, he doesn't do that. He promises to enlighten our hearts and minds, not just once, but repeatedly. And not just repeatedly, but regularly. And not just regularly, but frequently. And not not even just frequently, but he says continually, nonstop, uninterrupted revealing of God to the Christian. He shows himself to us. If only Moses could have had that kind of a deal. He says, show me your glory. And he says, guess what, guys? New Testament believer, you have a gift. I will reveal the Father to you continually. There is a period of time in history. It was in the 17th, 18th century. It's known as the Enlightenment. For those who like to study history, you'll know this period well. If you like anything about psychology or philosophy or pretty much anything about modern history at all, you have to study this period in great detail because the modern academia loves the Enlightenment. Wikipedia, which is every scholar's greatest tool, describes this as a shift away from religious faith and to the sovereignty of reason. The Enlightenment was a push away from the authority of church and away from scripture and a movement toward the evidence of the senses. Now, ironically, that means that the Enlightenment is quite literally the opposite of Enlightenment. It is a darkening of the human mind. It is a darkening of human reason. It is saying, God must not be true. God must not be real. Therefore, the only thing I can know or believe or trust is what I experience with my five senses. That is not enlightenment. But Jesus prayed for us that we might be truly enlightened. Where there was distance, he brought us near to God. Where there was blindness, he gave us sight. Where there was darkness, he gave us light. Where there was ignorance, he gave us knowledge. Where there was foolishness, he gave us wisdom. Jesus continually, unceasingly, constantly, and perpetually makes the Father known to you through faith in Jesus Christ. But the second thing that Jesus prays for us, Jesus prayed for the gratification of his people. Notice verse 13. But now I am coming to you, Jesus speaking of going to the Father, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. Now, satisfy is a word that is often used when we are preaching or teaching in the church. Satisfy is a good word, is a word that means to fulfill something. You can satisfy the demands of a person. You can satisfy the requirements of a job description, for example. But a satisfaction in its original meaning does not say anything about delight or enjoyment. Gratification, on the other hand, is the same thing as satisfaction with one key difference. That gratification always in, implies captivation or delight or pleasure of the heart. 
And let's face it, that's what every human is seeking. That's what we try to get. The existential crisis that every human experiences is the frustration that everything the world promises to gratify you will only lead you to undeniable emptiness. Every single avenue that we attempt to find self-gratification proves to be nothing more than a dead end. But here in verse 13, Jesus prays that we who know him might have his joy fulfilled in us. Wow. That he would care, not just about that we are saved, but how we experience this life, that our joy would be fulfilled by his joy. It is one thing for Jesus to promise to give us joy. Well, that's a great gift. It's quite another and greater gift for him to promise to give us his own joy. This is not just some random guy saying, hey, I'm kind of joyful. You can have a little extra. This is the most joyful person who has ever lived in the history of the world. And he says, if you want something, I've got joy and I'm going to give it to you for the gratification of your soul. Let's do a thought exercise here. Now imagine yourself as a vessel of some sort, a cup, a bowl, something. Now imagine yourself as this vessel that can be filled with liquid and you're trying all of your existence to find something to fill yourself with. And the problem is there is nothing available to you. You can never find anything that will fill you. And as you go through life, Christ then finds you and he saves you and then he fills you up and now you are full. He says that your joy will be full. All the way back in John 15, 11, you'll remember that Jesus says these things to the disciples. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. What does that look like? You are a vessel. You are filled to the brim. Nothing else can go in there. This means two things. First, it means that there will never be anything else that can add to your joy. Yes, it can add to your happiness. It can add to your experience. There's no place, however, for you to add more joy. Nothing else can fit. So even if there theoretically were something else out there to go into you to make you happy, it couldn't give you joy because there's nowhere to put it. So Christian, you don't need to search any longer to find joy. There is a place to find it, and that is in Jesus Christ. Joy is always available to the believer who abides in Christ. But secondly, this means that no matter what happens in your life, no matter how much that cup is shaken, you can't lose your joy because it's not something that you put there yourself. It's something that comes from Christ. That means that people can take away your job. People can take away your freedom. They could even take away your life, but they can't take away your joy because it belongs to Christ and he is unshakable and will remain unshaken. Yet in the midst of all these circumstances, in the midst of every trial, in the midst of every difficulty, you remain steadfast, filled with joy. Why? because Jesus prayed that you would have his joy in you. And he says, so that they might know that I'm yours. When you have joy like this, the world doesn't get it, and they don't understand it, and they look at you and they say, what in the world is going on? How can you have joy in the midst of all of this? It reveals to them the truth of Christ himself. Thirdly, Jesus uh, had a prayer request for the uh, sanctification of, of his people. Now look with me to verses 16 and 17. It says, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Have you ever felt absolutely overwhelmed by the reality of your ongoing sinfulness? Have you ever felt like there's just something that you can't shake? Jesus prayed for you. When you feel that, remember, Jesus 
prayed for you. Have you felt trapped in sin and you feel like you just can't give that sin up? Well, Christian, Jesus prayed that you would. Jesus prayed that you would succeed in fighting and killing that sin. He prayed that you would be conformed into his image. He prayed that you would be holy. He prayed for your sanctification. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 tells us, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. What does God want me to do with my life? He wants you to be holy. That's pretty simple. But this doesn't happen to us randomly or arbitrarily. This is a specific catalyst that's necessary as an ingredient for your sanctification. Jesus prays that we would be sanctified in the truth. Which truth? What truth are we talking about here? Two plus two equals four. That doesn't really change my holiness level very much when I understand that or believe it. He says, sanctify them in your truth. And he tells us exactly which truth. His word is truth. It's made clear to us in this text that all true sanctification is produced by the application of scripture to our lives. God's word is truth. God's word sanctifies. Now, I know that you guys are accustomed to hearing song lyrics from the past on Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings, so tonight will be no different, Ed. I will say that the art of the music industry has been dying a slow death ever since 1969, but I think it might have actually died 30 years later in 1999, when we were kind of at the height of the American techno revolution movement. And there was a song released that burned across the airwaves, a song with the lyrics that were infuriatingly difficult to forget, the lyrics that go like this. I'm blue, daba diba, blue, daba dee, daba die. Does anybody want to admit they remember that song? Good, because we're going to sing that for our doxology tonight. Um, No, of course we're not going to sing that for our doxology. And why would we not sing that for our doxology? We're not going to sing that song that repeats those incomprehensible, meaningless words over and over and over. We're not going to sing them because there's nothing there. It's empty. It's worthless. It has no value. It has no meaning. However, there are actually songs that I think would be worse for you to sing. There are actually songs that I think hinder and harm the Christian. There are songs that parade themselves as Christian songs, but they twist scripture into not truth, but untruth. They distort the gospel and they steal glory from God. And much of modern Christian music falls into this category. But why do I bring this up when talking about sanctification? Here's why. Because music has a direct connection to our emotions. God built it that way. And I can't tell you how many times Christians have told me, I get discouraged, the world is against me, and so what I do, I I lock myself in my car for a little while and I listen to some Christian music. And then when talking about it, you discover that what they mean by Christian music is not really Christian music. The melody might soothe you, they might say a couple Jesus words, but ultimately this repetition that's all catchy does not provide you with any truth that can sanctify you. It might make your emotions feel better, but it can't give you holiness or spiritual growth because there is no truth in it. And this is true in regards to music, but I want to use that as just a simple example that we can broaden now to all of human experience. So many people believe that they are sanctified, that they are maturing, that they are holy because they have a feeling, because they have an experience, because they have some kind of intangible emotion by which they measure their spiritual maturity. I must be growing as a Christian because I feel like I'm growing as a Christian. But there is an objective source to sanctification. God works through his word to change you. Jesus prayed for you that God would work in you 
to use his word to change you, to use his word to chisel away and sculpt away everything other than that which glorifies God. Look at verse 19. He continues and says, and for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Consecration is something we just don't understand as Americans. We didn't grow up in the Old Testament system of consecration and separation and holiness and, and all these activities that took place in the temple. We don't understand that very well. But this was a common thing. To, uh, to have something consecrated means you take something that's generally a normal vessel, something that is used for common things, and then you separate it and you make it uncommon. You make this exclusively for God. This is no longer to be used for common things. This is to be set aside only for God. And it is to be done publicly so that the world will know this is only for God. Consecration was never a private individual thing. It was done publicly. So you can't say when you're nervous or worried, oh, I'm going to consecrate this to God. And then when you feel like, oh, maybe things are okay, I'm just going to take that back. No, you have publicly displayed it as now being consecrated to God. So now it belongs to God. And Jesus does this for us at the cross. He publicly displays himself as an unmistakable declaration of commitment to God's will. Jesus died in order to answer this prayer for you. Jesus died so that you might be holy. He died so that you might be sanctified. He consecrates himself so that he might cause you to grow in your sanctification. The fourth thing that Jesus prayed is he prayed to commission his people. Look at verse 18. As you sent me into the world... So I have sent them into the world. Now, brothers and sisters, I want you to know that Jesus has sent you into the world. He does this in like manner to the Father sending the Son. Just as I have been sent into the world, I have sent them into the world. Now, what in the world is Jesus talking about here? Because obviously, if you read the Bible, you'll notice there's some distinctions between you and Jesus. And you and I were not sent quite in the same way that he was. You were not pre-existent in heaven being worshipped by angels. So you were not sent from the throne above. You were not sent through a virgin who was con- uh, who conceived by the Holy Spirit. You and I were not born that way. You were not sent in identical fashion. So what in the world does he mean by saying, this commissioning is identical. Father, you sent me, and now I sent them. It means that he sends you out to continue the mission that he has fulfilled. You can't die for the sins of another person. Jesus never tells you to do that. But you, just like Jesus, are called to the mission of making disciples. Like Christ, we are called to be the light of the world in a dark and crooked generation. You are called to be a light-bringing, disciple-making force for the kingdom of God. Now, what if I was somehow able to put a tracker on your phone? Now, I realize we're in the age of COVID, so everybody's a little nervous about this, so I'm not able to do this. But what if I could put a tracker on your phone and this tracker was able to follow you around and and next time you gather on Sunday, we'd put on the screen a red dot for every person on a map and just show every place that you go all over the city. And you would see this tangled web of all of these people traveling all over the place. And what if we were able to make a blue dot then for every person you had a conversation with? You would see that there would be thousands of blue dots all over the New York metro area. And who knows where you guys work? Maybe you're traveling to Japan this week. There might be some all around the world that God has sent you to these spheres of influence so that you might be the light of the gospel to the world. Let's not pretend that going into the world requires packing a bag. Jesus traveled no more than 35 miles 
from where he was born, except when his parents took him to Egypt. As an adult, he was limited to a very finite location in the Middle East. You don't have to go far to do the work of the Lord. Let's not pretend that we are going to be trapped into either the missionary lifestyle of going to, let's say, Japan, or staying here and doing nothing. By staying here, you are doing something. And Christ has commissioned you to make disciples out of those people that you encounter every day. So you're a goer. Whether you understand yourself to be or not, you are called to be a goer. We simply just differ in terms of scale, not in terms of kind, than those who go around the world. Some cross an ocean, maybe you'll cross the hallway, or maybe you'll cross the street, but you need to go for Christ. Now, we're going to actually look now at the fifth and sixth prayer requests of Jesus together. But what I want you to see as we move forward is these two things are pretty much inseparable from one another, and they connect closely to one another. Fifthly, Jesus prays to unite his people to one another. And sixthly, Jesus prays to unify his people with the Father. Now, I realize normally in the English language, we use the word unite and the word unify interchangeably. However, these are not the same word. They are two distinct concepts. To unite means to take multiple objects and to bring them together to a point of inseparability. They are still distinct, but you make them connect. To unify means to make two things into one thing. That's why we refer to marriage as a one flesh union rather than a one flesh unity because we are making these two people, you know, these two people, they're still separate in our eyes. But what does God say? What God has joined together, let no man rend asunder. In other words, there is something mysterious taking place in heaven when we are making vows up on this stage to one another. I made vows to my wife right here, standing in this place. And guess what? I was making vows, but God was tying a knot. I didn't tie the knot. God brought us together, and he made us into a one flesh union. Let's look uh, at the prayer here of Jesus in verses 21 through 23. He says, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Whew. That's one of those places in the Bible that when I'm doing my Bible reading, I just go too fast. Like I, I get to that and I say, I, yeah, I guess. Amen. I don't really know what that said. And so I just keep going and I need to slow down because these words were designed to awe my soul about what God has promised for us to unite with one another and to be unified to God. But let's see here these two amazing, shocking, beautiful truths. First, that God unites his people with one another. He prays that we would all be one. And he explains that this unity will be a testament to the world that Jesus has been sent from God. How does the world know that, we, that Jesus is from God? Because you guys get along and love each other and live like you love one another. Let me ask the question, how is it that we can actually be one? How can we be united with one another? Uh, one good way to move forward to answering a question correctly is by chipping away at the wrong answers first and revealing the incorrect beliefs first. And uh, So that's what we're going to do tonight. The other day I went to the thrift store. We have this big thrift store in our area. 
And uh, sometimes I like to go in there and look at the books, and occasionally I'll come across something that's interesting. And this day I found a book about the future of the ecumenical movement. And this book was really interesting, but also terrible, so I'm glad I bought it for like 75 cents instead of buying 30, new for $30. In this book, basically there are a bunch of Roman Catholics and Greek Orthodox and Lutherans and a bunch of people from various other faiths, And they were basically arguing that what we need to do is we need to bring ourselves back together with one Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant branch of Christianity becoming one. It's going to be theologically nebulous, but that's okay. And they use this text. Jesus demands that we be one. Therefore, we must be one. Is that what Jesus means? That we're supposed to be one? No. That ecumenical spirit, I will say, is not just found in odd corners of the church Uh, This kind of thinking is invading the church in very dangerous ways. And just today, I spoke with a woman from a parachurch organization who called me. They wanted to be involved in our church in a form of ministry, and she reached out, and, and I spoke with this woman for a little while, and I asked the same question that I always do to anybody who calls, regardless of purpose, to see what they want to do with the church. I said, can you just do me a favor and just share the gospel with me so I know what you understand the gospel to be? And the woman began to share the gospel, and she said, here's the gospel. I believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then she stopped. And I was waiting for something else to come out. And and I said, "Um, is that what you mean by the gospel? And she said, yes, that's, that's, that's the gospel. I said, well, you know, I think there's more to it than that. Because, you know, even Roman Catholics would agree with that. Mormons would agree with that. And I just don't believe that we're going to see them in heaven. And her response was shock and awe. What? You believe there are people that are not going to heaven? Shocked that I would think such a thing. And she continued to explain her understanding of the gospel. And she said, well, you know, I I understand the gospel to be that I add Jesus to my program. Well, no, that is not what the gospel is at all. And I, I spoke to her for a little bit. I spoke to her very kindly and gently. But I want you to understand that what we are looking at here is not that we should unite with all people who define themselves as Christians, because you are not a Christian just because you say you are a Christian. You are a Christian if you are in Christ. How can we unite with all of these people? We can't. It's absolutely impossible. We should not. Notice what it says right in the middle of verse 21. There's a little line that is so important, that they also may be in us. The question that we must ask before we unite with other Christians is, are they in Christ? Are they in Christ? If the answer is no, then I am sorry. There is no business that I have doing some kind of ministry with them. Thankfully, the rest of the New Testament helps us here a lot in knowing how do we actually apply this then with people who profess to be Christians. Because let's face it, if every person that said they were a Christian required to go through an extensive series of your questioning and and studying and researching and trying to understand, then it would be impossible. We just don't have enough time. So how do we know how to trust and unite with people? Well, guess what? The Bible tells us to be faithfully a part of a local church. And so in this church, you don't have a responsibility to all the people out there, but in this church, you do. In this church, you are called to unite with your brothers and sisters in Christ. In this church, you are called to watch them and to ensure that they are in Christ. In this church, you are called to be one. You are called to love one another, to forgive one another, to bear one another's burdens. You are called to be one. But moreover, and more importantly, We see that Jesus also prayed, not that we would just be united to one another, which, let's face it, is bizarre and strange to the world. The the world is great at dividing. We can see that all the time. 
But beyond that, there's a greater bringing together that we find in this passage that he tells us we are to be uh, unified with the Father. There is this puzzling, puzzling and seemingly paradoxical way that Jesus speaks about this in terms of his spatial relation to us and to the Father. But notice what he says. He says this word, in. Jesus says that I am in them, and he adds that the Father is in him. Now, if you imagine the statement that we're talking about in terms of like Russian nesting dolls, this will help us kind of figure out the visual that he's giving here. If we look at it that way, what we see here is that inside of the believer, you open up the doll, there's Jesus. And inside that doll, there's the Father. However, if you look through this entire section that we've been studying this summer, and if you look through the rest of Scripture, you'll find that Jesus switches this metaphor around all the time in very paradoxical ways. For example, you may remember back in John 14, 20, where it said, in that day, you will know that I am in my father and you in me and I in you. So let's consider the nesting doll picture again. This time, Jesus starts with the father. That's the first one. And then you open up that doll. And then what do we find? In the father, we find the son. And then if you open that doll, then you find the Christian. But if you open that doll, he says, and I in you. So there's Jesus again. And so if you go back, it's like this there's Jesus, there's me, there's Jesus, there's me, and you go back and forth. It's just like the never-ending nesting doll that goes on for eternity. This is really difficult for the human mind to comprehend, but I think it's like that intentionally because what you must understand is that there is nothing in nature that is fully contained by another thing while also fully containing another thing. There's nothing that is in something, and that thing is also simultaneously within it. There's nothing like that in the universe. But I think that's the point Jesus is making. He is declaring that we are so unified with him that those who are in Christ are inseparable from him. We are in him and he is in us. This means that we are able to be joined through Christ to the Father in such a way that we are absolutely inseparable eternally. And the Father loves the Son in a similar way it tells us that the Father loves us. We are joined to the Trinity itself by being unified with Christ. Jesus prayed that this unity with the church and this union with the Father would be true for every believer. The seventh prayer request that Jesus offers is that the Father would preserve his people. Look back to verses 11 and 12. He says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. Notice here, your perseverance, your faith is fully dependent on how tightly God is holding on to you. It is fully dependent on whether or not he has you in his grasp. Here, Jesus is saying, look, you are the one holding them. He has taken you out of the clutches of the devil and he has claimed you as his own. But unlike a small child, God is never going to grow tired of you or forgetful of you and then just drop you and leave you behind on the sidewalk. Like a fully outfitted warrior, Jesus says in these verses that I have guarded them. I have guarded them. I have stood like a soldier to watch over and protect them, to ensure nothing will happen to them. And he says, now you watch over them. And he prays that his people might not be lost. Now remember in verse 13, he prays in a way that is retroactively including everyone in this number. Jesus was praying for your faith, that you would not be destroyed. Now look down to verses 14 and 15. Jesus adds, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, 
just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Here you find that Jesus has prayed against the influences of the world and against the power of the evil one. They have no power over you any longer because you have been protected by God himself. Look, nobody can sneak attack past God. Nobody can overpower him. You are safe in him. So brothers and sisters, you need to understand what this means. This means not only can you not be taken by some outside force, but you can't take yourself out. Do you understand how glorious that truth is that if you were in Christ, He is going to convict you so harshly that you can't sleep until you must repent of your sin. He is going to draw you back to himself. He is going to discipline you as we learn in Hebrews chapter 12. And brothers and sisters, as we've already learned that he is going to sanctify you through that process. Listen, you never have to sin again. The power that sin had over you is broken. You are not a slave anymore. And he says here that the devil no longer has power over you. He says, protect them from the evil one. He can't touch you. Your salvation sits firmly in God's fist. And let's just consider for a moment. Like if I really tried, I think Sonny James is strong enough to open my fist, right? <laughs> you can't open God's fist. Nobody is going to take, him, take you away from him. You are safe. Christ has prayed for your safety to the Father. Now, lastly, I want you to see that Jesus prayed for the glorification of his people. Verse 24, Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. There's an old song. I I know that we've sung it here in the past. When we all get to heaven. You guys know this song. When we all get to heaven... What a day of rejoicing that will be when we all will sing and shout the victory. We're going to see Jesus, right? Are we sure about that? Are we actually going to get there? Are we going to arrive? Are we going to make it to heaven? Will we actually be glorified to the point where we can experience the unveiled glory of God? Yes, we are. We're going to make it. His children will complete the journey. Jesus has effectually and fervently prayed that you will arrive there to be with him to do what? to see his glory without the hindrance of sin or flesh. That's what he prays to the Father. Let them come to me. Let them see my glory. Brothers and sisters, Jesus prayed for your glorification. He prayed that you would finish the race. All of the promises of the new glorified body, all of the promises of the the streets paved with gold and the tears wiped away and the eternal worship around the throne of God. If you are in Christ, those are your promises and they are yes and amen because Jesus prayed that you would make it. God always finishes what he starts. Now, let me close out our time together by looking forward because although we finish our time in John together tonight, the book of John is not yet finished. And it's vital for us to understand that these prayers that Jesus was offering to the Father, these were only able to be answered because of what transpired in the following chapters. The elect of God could not be enlightened by Christ or gratified by Christ or sanctified by Christ or commissioned by Christ or unified united with one another or unified with the Father or preserved by God or glorified in heaven without the cross. That is the necessary element that had to take place in order for all of these pieces to fall into place. He purchased these things, your salvation, with his own shed blood. He guaranteed these things by his own resurrection from the dead. Brothers and sisters, he bought us. And all of these promises of salvation that we've discussed tonight, these are all aspects of your salvation. 
He has promised them, he has prayed for them, and he has accomplished them at the cross. So saints, stand firm, hold fast, don't waver, don't fear. Jesus has not only prayed these things for you, he also did everything necessary to permanently ratify this covenant of your salvation at the cross. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for these words. We thank you so much for this truth in the book of John. We pray, Lord, that tonight, as we go, we would be immensely encouraged by what you have taught us. We would look back and remember that Christ has prayed for us. Father God, I pray that if anyone in this room is discouraged, they would know Jesus stands to be their Savior, that he continues to pray. He intercedes for us. So, Father, I pray that we would consider him now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.